use was far less common than its neutral denotation. Here, for example, is the calm and accurate definition given in the Oxford English Dictionary. Any association, systematic scheme, or concerted movement for the propagation of a particular doctrine or practice. Thus was propaganda generally perceived not as an instrument for striking horror and aversion in the souls of government officials, but as an enterprise whose consequences might seem horrid, or innocuous, or even beneficial, depending on its authors and their aim, and the perceiver's point of view. A campaign to improve public health through vaccination, sanitary cooking, or the placement of spittoons— was or is no less a propaganda drive than any anti-clerical or socialist or nativist crusade. Evidently this fact was apparent to those few who used the word, which did not become a synonym for big black lies, until the Allies made the word familiar to the masses of Great Britain and America. Until then, propaganda was a term so unimportant that there is no definition for it in the great 1911 Encyclopedia Britannica, which does include a short entry for propagate. The war had a complex effect on the repute of propaganda, although the practice had, albeit unnamed, been variously used by governments for centuries, Napoleon was especially incisive on the subject as well as an inspired practitioner. It was not until 1915 that governments first systematically deployed the entire range of modern media to rouse their populations to fanatical assent. Here was an extraordinary state accomplishment, mass enthusiasm at the prospect of a global brawl that otherwise would mystify those very masses and that shattered most of those who actually took part in it. The Anglo-American drive to demonize the Hun and to cast the war as a transcendent clash between Atlantic civilization and Prussian barbarism made so powerful an impression on so many that the worlds of government and business were forever changed. Now public opinion stood out as a force that must be managed, and not through clever guesswork, but by experts trained to do that all-important job. Thus the war improved the status of those working in the fields of public suasion. Formerly, the lords of industry and commerce had often seen the advertising agent as a charlatan, associated with the tawdry bunkum used to peddle patent medicines and cigarettes, and trying to sell a service that any boss with half a brain could surely manage on his own. The nascent field of public relations also had been disesteemed by those atop the social pyramid, who saw that sort of work as necessary only on the vaudeville circuit and on Broadway. The great Allied campaign to celebrate or sell democracy, etc., was a venture so successful, and it seemed so noble, that it suddenly legitimized such propagandists, who, once the war had ended, went right to work massaging or exciting various publics on behalf of entities like General Motors, Procter & Gamble, John D. Rockefeller, General Electric. And so, from the signing of the Versailles Treaty to the crash of 1929, there was high excitement in the booming field of peacetime propaganda. 
That reborn generation of admin and publicists, no longer common hucksters but professionals, sold their talents to big business through a long barrage of books, essays, speeches, and events, extolling the miraculous effects of advertising and or publicity. That is, propaganda, as the proponents of the craft and their corporate clients often kept referring to it quietly. According to the propagandists' evangelical self-salesmanship, many of them were in fact the sons of ministers, their revolutionary science would do far more than make some people richer. Just as during the war, propaganda would at once exalt the nation and advance the civilizing process, teaching immigrants and other folks of modest means how to transform themselves through smart consumption into happy and presentable Americans. Throughout the twenties, as propaganda's earnest advocates devoutly pushed that faux progressive...